Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Philip Andrew Gibbs, author of Murder and Mountain Justice in the Moonshine Capital of the World, published by the History Press. If you missed last week's episode, make sure to check it out. And if you have a moment, leave us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other listeners and history buffs find the show, and we sure are grateful. Let's get back to it. Phil, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Your book opens with a very violent year, which is 1978. There are so many murders <laughs> that take place in just this one year alone. I mean, you you would be forgiven for thinking that a serial killer was on the loose in western Franklin County. How old were you at the time? I was 21 at the time. Actually, I was in college uh, at East Tennessee State, and um, I had just heard about the murder of my childhood friend, Terry Flora. I was very familiar with the man who killed him, as was everyone in the county, that whole area. And uh, I thought to myself, Someone needs to write a book about not just this murder, but all the other murders and, all, and, and, and the feuding, vigilantism, vigilantism, all of that. That's where I first had an idea for a book. Now, that was 1978, but I was aware of some of those murders, but not all of them, because I did move back to the county in the fall. I put that aside, went on to get a PhD, and became a professor, and did that for 30 years. All the writing I did really was academic, taught abroad. I returned to the book after a little visit I had with a, another close friend of mine in Roanoke, Virginia, a very dear friend. We had worked on the farm together. I told him that, you know, I need to, we need to think about writing this book. And I, he said, well, shut up or put up. And he got a piece of paper and he put it down on the table in front of me and said, okay, I want an outline in three months. And I said, okay. And I decided to take up the challenge. On the drive back to Georgia, the eight-hour drive back to Georgia, I laid out the book in my head, how I wanted to begin it. I wanted to begin with that year, yeah. 1978, because I wanted that to be the hook for the book. Absolutely. What struck me about it was the way that you start at this one point in time as a it's a focal point to say that this this year was kind of unlike what the region had seen previously in order to understand the violence of that particular year you do have to actually travel backwards in time and show the politics and the drama and the struggle that is leading up to it and that includes things like you know, the, the family dynamics, you know, the extreme poverty of the region, the tensions with law enforcement, with turncoats, you know, that sort of thing. But then what happens in 1978, once we get back to it, that really struck me, Phil, as I, as I was kind of traveling through, through your story, is that you begin to braid your narratives, right? You have multiple overlapping narratives, which kind of lead us through the last half of the book until at the very end, you braid them all back together again. I mean, you're, you're tracing each of these murders, and some of them were incredibly grisly. I think for 
our listeners who are interested, you know, I, I absolutely encourage them to go and pick up a copy of this book so that they can read about what happened in the region from a very factual basis. They can understand what was happening, but be warned, it's dark, you know, it is dark and you're, you're shining a light on it, but it, there's some dark places that your flashlight, you know, is, is, is going into. Nevertheless, you know, by the time we get to the end of the narrative, you have helped us to see why 1978 served as this sort of pivot point or focal point in a way that you don't offer tidy conclusions. <laughs> um, you know, some of these murders had nothing to do with one another, right? And yet, by the logic of how violence and struggle operate in Franklin County, they have everything to do with one another. That's what struck me is that kind of you go discordant from the melody and then the melody resolves, to use a musical metaphor. That was the, the method to my madness was to begin with that year, a year for murder, and do exactly what you said, go, to go back in time, try to document yeah, the, and explain the best I could the, the violence. Uh, and, and remember, it's, it's not a book just about moonshining. There are lots of books about moonshining. I did not want to write a moonshining book. I mean, there are plenty of them out there. Uh, and I've been, and it was about something larger, deeper than that. Based on what you told me, I, I, I feel like I accomplished what I set out to accomplish. I was happy with beginning the book with, the, with 1978 and those murders and then coming back to it. Uh, but as you said, weaving the story, it uh, is dark. That darkness takes different forms. And I think one of the things that's interesting about your account is that when you start writing about Jaybird Philpot, who is one of the primary antagonists, uh, you know, one of the most troubling individuals that we encounter, you write that he, as violent and, and paranoid and sadistic in some ways as he was, you know, it's interesting because he was born into it. I couldn't help but think of the medieval guilds, you know, it was like he was born into a family of moonshiners, you know, his daddy Homer and then, you know, all of the siblings and everything where he entered into that life and he had no control over where he entered into. Help us to understand with Jaybird, was he was he a bad apple from the very beginning or did he turn rotten to the core later on? Well that's a question I've pondered because you said he was born into this culture of, of defying authority, you know, of seeking your own justice. Um, you could almost say that his life was kind of already mapped out for him. But I don't, I'm not sure if Homer actually pushed Jaybird into moonshining. I think Jaybird, Jaybird wanted to make money. You know, he wanted, uh, and, he, and he found that was the way to do it. Uh, he, I think he got a lot of excitement from it. Uh, he, as a young age, you know, he had to go to jail. He was running moonshine to North Carolina and actually ran a roadblock. <laughs> and that's kind of a famous episode in his life. And he even kind of bragged about that later on to people, how he had 
talk about defying the authorities, he took his car and just ran right through the roadblock and just and hid out in North Carolina. Of course, later he was captured and served time. I mean, if you look at the, the definition of a psychopath, he seems to have those those traits, those qualities. I mean, uh, he didn't care. He didn't at times. It didn't seem like he had empathy for anybody. But then there are other people who tell you. Well, Jaybird was a hard worker, and there's no doubt about that. He worked day in, day out. I mean, he he was not a lazy man, and it wasn't that he was just relied on moonshine for his livelihood. He had a farm. He had a lot of land. Uh, he had had earth-moving equipment, and uh, he worked. And there's some who even tell you, because I encountered someone during this signing that I did in Virginia. Jaybird had always been nice to him, and... You know, he had he would give you a shirt off his back, but if you crossed him, watch out. You're asking a very difficult question. I don't know at what point in time Jay Bird becomes this person that this brute that you know, some people would call him, this man who seemed to be antisocial, so violent. I, I don't know what at point that happens. That's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? I don't know. I just other than young as a young man, yeah. He certainly was known to get into fights, and you know he wasn't a big man, by the way. Uh, he was rather slight of stature, but he always, as I, you know, when he got into fights, I mean, he gave as good as he got. I mean, he could be vicious, not only members of the community, but to his family. Some of that he perhaps got from Homer. So you might say that he had the example of Homer. Uh, and that may have played a role in all this. Well, there aren't there aren't nice slick answers, you know, in many in many cases. And I think that that's one of these stark realities that we really have to confront when we look directly into the heart of evil. Is that we, it's difficult for us to comprehend it or kind of sum it up in some way. And and I'm willing to say, you know, we are looking into the heart of evil here because, you know, this man killed your friend. I mean, he murdered your friend in cold blood. He did not have to do it. And uh, you know, he completely overreacted. He was on a hair trigger. He took no time to establish why your friend might just be driving with his girlfriend at the time. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, there's this there's this knee-jerk reaction of perceive threat, respond with violence, and there's no middle ground in between. I guess the question that I have for you, Phil, and this this comes up several times in the different chapters in your book, is there's an old saying, and I'm sure you've heard it before, that you know villains rarely think of themselves as villains. You know, <laughs> like the, the bad guys don't see themselves as bad guys um, because they have different rationalizations for their actions. You know, they might see themselves as being providers. They might see themselves as uh, making a name, you know, establishing a legacy. There can be all sorts of rationalizations that enter into, you know, uh, someone someone's behavior like that. Do you do you think that you say psychopath, but do you think that Jaybird had any capacity for self-reflection on his actions, or do you think he was devoid of that capacity? I think that he could at times, and I I got a sense of this in terms of his family members to be remorseful for some of the things he did. In so many of the cases of Jaybird 
resorting to violence. Uh, he always felt wholly justified that his someone had trespassed on his land. Someone had defamed him in some way, or someone had tried to take advantage of him, maybe in a business deal or what have you. But I don't think he was completely devoid of, of completely devoid of empathy, uh, or rather self-reflection. I think he'd recognize at times that, yeah, what he did was, was extreme. But I think at bottom, he felt it was necessary. And that to not would to not resort at times to violence uh, or or cruelty, you know, uh, would lead to people maybe disrespecting him, and that he had to maintain a kind of reputation. I I think Jay Bird liked the fact that people feared him. That was very useful to him, you know, uh, and that, that's what you often have, you know, uh, with. Uh, Folks who, um, well, I mean, they're, we often have criminals or members of the community, or have they? They 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 need that. They need straight street credibility, so to speak. And I think that, that was all part of it. And it has a lot to do too with the fact that in those mountains, people felt that you know, uh, there are folks out there that perhaps. You know, are are apt to t- try to take advantage of me, or they they may try to uh, compromise my family in some way, and I have to be prepared. I have to be prepared to use violence. But but of course, his his he was totally at times, as you just said yourself, irrational. It's just why why would you? In the case of Terry, but there are other cases like that that I document. Uh, just and there are people who sound that you, even the authorities said that you you got to be careful around Jaybird because as you know in the book, the very first chapter in that section about Terry Terry Flora. I mean, as soon as as soon as Quint Overton, the sheriff, discovered that it was Jaybird. He put Denise, Terry's girlfriend, into protective custody. You know, he, he understood very well that Jaybird might try to harm her in some way or have someone harm her. Jaybird was already suspected, as you know, of being responsible for his first wife's murder. No one was ever brought to justice in that case. Uh, but um, I, don't, I don't want to reveal too much here, but yeah. Uh, already, already, you know, he was suspected of that and so many other incidents. So, yeah, there was a good chance he might try to harm her. And, uh, um, again, asking, I think he tended to feel justified, you know, in most of his actions. Uh, so I... Um, but, I mean, I think most of the time he felt justified and then there might be times when he would reflect and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And I wouldn't say that he was someone who had this great capacity of self-reflection because, again, he did, he believed, what he had to do. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events... 
on our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Violent means usually result in violent ends, and Jaybird's story is no exception to that particular rule. Now, we're not going to spoil it. We're not going to reveal what happened um, to him at the end. Listeners um, who would like to know uh, can go and pick up a copy of the book to, to find out. But it is in, in some ways appropriate, and it is in some ways you know, fitting what what happened to him. Now, before before we begin to wrap things up, we we need a little bit of levity here. We need a little bit of um, of comic relief, <laughs> uh, just to kind of take take the take the pressure off here. And you know, honestly, Phil, I yeah, found right. in throughout your entire account, I found there was this one person who we mentioned him very briefly last week, but I had to ask you about him. You know, today. Um, who serves as this kind of, I thought of him as the Greek chorus. Okay, we all remember the Greek chorus from our high school drama classes, you know, the kind of the neutral neutral perspective that kind of tells you what's going on and maybe opinionates a little bit, but for the most part, they're not affecting the action. They're just kind of describing the action and, you know, so forth. And that is this amazing news photographer named Morris Stevenson who has these incredible, Incredible photos from the history of moonshine making in that part of the state and the county. And, you know, he he captures it all. I mean, he's got the stills, he's got the raids, he's got, you know, scraggly old mountain men, he's got lawmakers, not lawmakers, um, lawmen, you know, law enforcement, you know, blowing things up. He's got, he captures explosions on his, on his camera and... I mean, it is just such a treat to follow this guy around because he just brings that that kind of uh, he. You can tell. I mean, he's he's not out of danger himself going into these particular environments, but you can really tell he's having a good time, can't you, Phil? I mean, you you can almost definitely. Uh, I knew Morris Stevenson. I was a football player in high school, and he would take into high school 
pictures, you know, uh, the, the, that is the pictures of the team and all that. And of course, I read his articles, but he wrote a book. It's a self-published book called A Night of Making Liquor. And of course, I, I <laughs> yeah, and he actually spent one night, you know, when he was with revenue officers doing just that, making some liquor, just, and we're all just kind of having some fun. But uh, yeah, but Morris, um, yeah, he, uh, he, uh, <laughs> He was tireless, and, and you know, in, in trying to capture the the history of moonshining in Franklin County and take some priceless photos. And, and of course, you've mentioned many of them. Uh, but yeah, of course, I you know remember that section of the book where you know he he took uh, well he actually uh, took pictures of Jaybird's steel. Jaybird had actually actually had taken his 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 grading equipment and, and bulldozer had dug a hole in the side of a hill and put his still in there. Eventually it was found out, but Mars captures that. And of course the, the blowing up of that still, because as you know, revenue officers were using dynamite because what would happen if they didn't <laughs> blow them up, they, they would come back moonshine because if you great. took an ax to, yeah, the, the, a lot, the still, you might, they could still come back and patch it up. So they started blowing them up, using dynamite. And, of course, it became very dangerous, you know. In fact, I mean, Morris almost got decapitated, you know, from a, by a flying piece of metal <laughs> when he was trying to capture the blowing up of a steel. In fact, it was Jaybird's steel. He was threatened. Jaybird threatened Morris. Uh, actually, Morris had taken pictures it covered Jaybird and taking pictures of Jaybird being brought into custody. It was one that really made, I think, Jaybird mad. Uh, Jaybird was uh, arrested. He and his second wife for bigamy. She apparently had not got her divorce finalized. And there's a picture of Jaybird being brought in on charges of bigamy. And here you have Morris, a picture of Jaybird. Uh, and also, you know, he had frequently told uh, Morris that, you know, you're going to get what's coming to you. You're going to get yours, Morris. That's why Quint, Quint Overton said, you know, okay, you need to carry a pistol. This is a sheriff telling Morris, you need to carry a pistol because you don't know what Jaybird might do. But remember in the book, uh, Morris, he carries a pistol in his back, back pocket. And then but he started worrying that what's going to happen if, I end up shooting myself in the ass, you know. I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think I'd rather just take my chances with Jaybird rather than go through the embarrassment, you know. <laughs> so, kind of can't but, blame him, you know. But, actually, but, right? Yeah, yeah Mars. Mars. He was quite a character. Uh, he lived to his eighties. Uh, uh, he. Everyone knew Morris, but he was. He was. He was um, so important into in, in capturing the photographic history of moonshining in Franklin County. Well, his record is such a joy, you know, as you go through. And I think I, I didn't fully appreciate the scale of the operation really until I saw his photograph of all those submarine stills lined up one, you know, after another. Oh, yeah. Just the, it's like a dozen of them right there, and you realize that if you took all of that liquid. And um, all of that Mountain Dew, as the old Irish used to call it, you know, and you were to uh, you were to put that, you know, in one place, you could fill a swimming pool. Right. I mean, easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, and yeah, you're just thinking, wow, these guys really didn't know 
what they were what they were doing. But we exhort our listeners to go and check it out for themselves and see these photographs and read your account because it is such a uh, a really valuable contribution, I think, to the study of the area and the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean that. It, it's as we said last week. It's very realist, but you know, the realism and the lack of sugarcoating and the lack of whitewashing, I think, is one of its signature strengths. And um, it ain't all fun and games, you know. It just ain't. Well, that's also why it's, I know there's some who probably would not enjoy the book. Uh, and of course, I, I when I wrote the book, I, I knew there was a chance that I was going to uh, upset maybe some folks in the county, uh, maybe some me- members of the Philpot family, because uh, that's why I was very careful to document everything. And uh, I did, you know, encounter someone, you know, who... Uh, Basically, told me I was the scum of the earth for telling this story. That the story should be should not be told, or rather, they would rather the story not be told, because they worry about the the impact this might have on uh, on their grandchildren. Uh, that they may learn that their great grandfather was, at times, maybe most times, a vicious man, uh, and they don't. They don't want it brought up. They just don't want it brought up. But, you know, history is ugly at times and messy. And you had this, you had this personal encounter with somebody that you wrote about in the book or that who, was, who was mentioned in the book somehow? They're, you're saying they, they kind of came up to you and gave you some grief about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, and basically threatened me and called down the wrath of God on me and, uh, <laughs> and even mentioned that you saw what happened to Morris Stevenson, you know, in fact, even said that, that this, you know, uh, uh, Mars had told stories that, that, that found untruthful or not to her liking, and that she had basically called down, once again, the wrath of God on him, and, and she was saying that, you know, well, that's what happened to him. He died. Well, of course he died. He was 80-some years old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, what you think was going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Oh, we could have lived to 101, but no, you know, puts his curse on him, and <laughs> and, and that's what's going to happen to me, oh, you know. And and so I expected that. I mean, I really I was prepared for it because I I know some of these people just do not want it told. Uh, they don't, and of course, once again, that kind of proves the whole point of the book, doesn't it? I mean, in many respects that, you know, someone feels they're slighted, they're going to come after you. Uh, or you slighted their family in some respects. And and some folks will not let it go. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, one thing that I used to say about the, the Scots and the Scots-Irish is they like nothing more than a good grievance. And, and yeah, it's true. I, I think uh, people can't hang on to those things. Well, there's some irony there, of course, that uh, everybody's always in search of their own particular flavor of mountain justice, and it looks like somebody was trying to deliver some of theirs to you for for writing this particular book. But that shouldn't have been a surprise, should it? No, it wasn't a surprise, and I I I certainly did not get upset or anything like that. I just said, okay, um, you said your piece, and that's fine. I'm sorry you didn't like the book, and. Uh, 
So that's all you can do. But I was prepared. I, I had so many glowing, glowing reviews of the book and people telling me how much they loved it. And now I was starting to worry. Gee, I hope I pissed off somebody. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's important to make the right enemies in life, Phil. Oh, that's all I, can, all I can say about that. Well, let me ask you, uh, what, what's, um, what's the best way for folks to uh, get a hold of, of your work and of this particular volume? Is there a, a, a recommended channel that you would in, encourage folks to do that on? Well, I would like people, if they could, to purchase from the indie bookstores. Book No Further in Roanoke has it. Bookstores in Stanton, Virginia, and Danville, Virginia, Galax, Virginia, Blacksburg, Virginia, all those areas in Lynchburg. There they and of course you can buy from the big the big chains. I mean you can certainly get it on Amazon.com. You can get them get it from Barnes and Noble. You can get it certainly directly from Arcadia. If if at all possible, I would love for people to buy it from, you know, these indie bookstores that are you know, they're struggling, and they, they add so much to the community. Well, we'll make sure they know. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this account uh, with us. This has been just such a true pleasure to have you on. And it sounds like in these last, this last minute, maybe your, uh, your puppy dog has joined us yeah, yeah, <laughs> there yeah, in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Glad to have him on, too. Okay, thank you. <laughs> appreciate it, Phil. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Philip Andrew Gibbs, author of Murder and Mountain Justice in the Moonshine Capital of the World, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with more great interviews with today's top historians of true crime. See you then. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Mars. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. -S.